today we're going into part four of our message series on Jesus, which we started in the old auditorium. Last week we just took a break there, Pastor A. Very important uh, opening weekend here for the auditorium. Now we're going to keep going. And you know, I think, it's, I think it's really neat that the last series we ever preached in the old auditorium was a series about Jesus. And the first series we're ever preaching in this new auditorium is a series about Jesus. And the, and the crazy thing is, we didn't plan it that way. In fact, I didn't even notice it until uh, several weeks ago someone pointed it out to me. And I think that's spiritually significant. And, uh, and I think that's wonderful. But anyway, so far in this series, right, we've been talking about how Jesus is everything. He's everything. And relationship with Jesus is everything. And this whole series is built on that foundation. So if you're just new here or you just started coming now or whatever, this whole series is based on some stuff we talked about the first few weeks that knowing Jesus, walking with Jesus is everything. It's not just knowing about him, it's actually knowing him. And then two weeks ago we started talking about this, this truth. We started to shift gears a little bit in the series and we said that what you believe about Jesus matters. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, he said to the Jews, unless you believe I am, you will die in your sins. People will, many people will be in hell because they did not believe correctly about who Jesus is. What you believe about Jesus really matters. So now in these next few weeks, I want to explore again, and all of this is built on the foundation of relationship. We're not, we're not turning Jesus into a theological subject to be dissected. He's a person. But in the next, so that all of it is based on that relationship. But in the next few weeks, we want to talk about who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And you know, many Christians and teachers and leaders, when they talk about who is Jesus, they'll start with his characteristics. Jesus is a, is a lion. You know, Jesus is a lamb. Jesus is a servant. And, start, and all of those really wonderful, important things, not bad to do that at all. And we're going to touch on a number of those things in this series yet. Those are wonderful things. We need to talk about Jesus' characteristics. But when you're going to answer the question, who is Jesus, you don't start with what he's like. You start with, who is he? Who is Jesus? Not, he's like a lamb. Yes, he is. And he's like a lion. Yes, he is. And he's a servant. Yes, he most certainly is. And we love those traits about him. And to study them is so glorious. But who is he? And so when we start to talk about who is Jesus, we have to start with the whole God-man thing. And of course, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, many of you grew up in the church. Ever since Sunday school, you've had pounded into your head, Jesus is 100% God and he's 100% man. And, and, I'm, and thank God, if you're one of those people that you've grown up and you've had that pounded into your head, that's so good because that's such an important truth. Jesus is the God-man. He's both God and he's man. That's who he is. It's not just what he's like, it's who he is. Okay? The problem is with many of us Christians today is we've, we're fuzzy on the details, we, we can spout out, out for you the line, Jesus is God and he's man, or Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. We can spout that out, but we, we're fuzzy on the details. What does that mean, Jesus is God? Which God? Who is he? And what does it mean that Jesus is, is a man? How can he be both a man and God? How is he like us? How is he not like us? We're, we know the part about Jesus is God and man, but we're a little fuzzy on the details. And answering these questions and studying these questions, some people think, well, it's just good enough. Just know he's God and man. That's good enough. The rest is for theologians to discuss behind closed doors. It doesn't really, it's not relevant to my life. And the fact of the matter is, again, how you think about Jesus is the foundation for everything. It's not like you've got like 12 or 13 compartments in your Christian life and here's, here's you know, marriage, here's what you think about the end times, here's what you think about the cross, here's what you think about sin, here's what you think about Jesus, and here's a whole bunch of other things. And if you have the Jesus thing a little bit off, oh well, at least the rest of them are still right. That's not how it works. 
everything in our Christian walk is founded on Jesus. If your view of Jesus and what you believe about Jesus is a little bit off, everything else will be off too. It's not just one compartment out of every, any, everything else. It's the foundation of everything else. So who is Jesus? He's God. He's man. But what do we start with? When you, when you study this person, Jesus, what do we start with? Do we, you know, do we start with by studying his humanity? Do we study the fact that Jesus is a man and then from there work our way over to Jesus is God? Or do we start with Jesus is God and work our way towards him being man? Which way do we start? Is he the man God or is he the God man? And it matters where you start. For example, uh, uh, Mormons... Mormons believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. We talked about Jehovah's Witnesses a couple weeks ago. But uh, Mormons believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Mormons believe Jesus is the way of salvation. Mormons believe that Jesus lived the perfect life. And they also believe that Jesus is God and man. You say, sweet. So let's become Mormons. No. Mormons believe that Jesus was a man who through his perfect life became divine. He became God. And so they teach that the goal of the Christian life is to get so filled with the Holy Spirit and follow God and do right and, and know your Bible and all that sort of stuff to do that so you can become a God too. That's what they believe. See, it matters how you think about Jesus. Is he the man God or is he the God man? And so where you start, do we start by studying Jesus' deity, his divinity, his godness, or do we start by studying his humanness? Now, of course, I know some of you right there, it, the temptation is to think, oh, those crazy Mormons. Right? Oh, whew. We don't have that problem, right? The truth of the matter is that that kind of theology has seeped into massive chunks of the church, except much more subtle. Most of the church today would agree, oh, yeah, he's God and he's man, but in the teaching and in the thinking about Jesus, so yeah, the doctrinal statement maybe is he's God and man, and he's always been God and he became a man, but in our thinking, the emphasis, the picture of Jesus, the teaching about Jesus, all focuses on his humanity while basically uh, ignoring his divinity, and the end result is the same. For example, lots of word, and, word of faith teachers uh, and they have huge influence in the church today, tens of thousands of, uh, of people in their churches, lots of books being written. Uh, on their doctrinal statements, they'll write, yeah, Jesus is God. In their teaching, they emphasize Jesus is a man. That's what they emphasize almost entirely. And what they emphasize is everything Jesus did, he didn't do because he was God. He did it because he was a man filled with the Holy Spirit. So they emphasize over and over again, Jesus was a man filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, was Jesus filled with the Holy Spirit? No question. The Bible tells us that, and we teach that here at Southland too. But they teach, they pound away at this thing. Jesus was a man filled with the Holy Spirit. And they focus on man, 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 man filled with the Holy Spirit. And their whole point is, if you get filled enough with the Holy Spirit and have enough faith, you can do everything Jesus did too. And they've led, and what they've done is they've collapsed the difference between Jesus and us. Whoop, Jesus and us are basically the same. And they've led vast, huge chunks, many, many Christians with big smiles on the, on the front of their books and their fun, feel-good books. They've made many Christians basically believe like Mormons that we are small G gods who have faith in our own faith and our own positive thinking and our own positive words as if my positive words and my positive thinking and my faith are the thing that heals people. No, we are human beings. Jesus is God. He's the one with the power. We're not. 
And so how you think about Jesus really matters. Jesus is not man with a little bit of God added in. He's God. And from there we work our way to the fact that he is also man. And this is exactly how the Gospels, this is exactly how the Gospels teach us about Jesus. The Gospels, you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The Gospels were not written to bring Jesus down to our level. The Gospels, you, you spend any amount of time, and, and at the end of this message, I'm going to give you a challenge, and I, hopefully most of you are going to spend a lot of time in the Gospels in the next couple of months. But you spend any amount of time in the Gospels, you do not come away thinking that you and Jesus are like this, and you're a small g God who can do all kinds of other stuff. You come away thinking, Jesus is God, he's worthy of my worship, and I can trust in him and be saved. And so I want to show you this in a few verses here. Uh, John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31. Why were the Gospels written? Were the Gospels written to prove to us that Jesus is a man? Or were the Gospels written to us to prove to us that Jesus is God? John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is a man. That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Why did John write his gospel? Did he write the gospel to make you think that you could do everything Jesus does? Not a chance. What kind of good news is that? The good news is that Jesus is much different than we are, and he's much bigger than we are, and that's why we can trust in him and be saved. And John wrote his whole gospel so that we could know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's the way he wrote it. And that's the whole gospel. And once you begin to read the gospels, you will find that this theme screams off of every page. Every page. Every single page in the gospels. And I'm going to open this up for you in the next couple of weeks. But every page is screaming to you, Jesus is God, put your trust in him. Jesus is God, put your trust in him. And I want to show you just one story here. I, I can't help myself. There's lots of stories I've just fallen in love with in the gospels. And famous story, it's uh, Jesus calms the storm in Mark chapter 4. And I want us to show you this because it's just one example out of many, many, many in the Gospels of why the Gospels were written. They were written to prove to us that Jesus is God. When you think about Jesus, you start with the God part and then you go to the, to the man part, not the other way around. And as I read you this famous story, I want you to notice something. I want you to notice why Mark included this story in the Gospels. Did he include this story in the Gospels so that we would think, hey, Jesus was a man, and if we have enough faith, we can be just like him? Or did he include this story so that we would know that Jesus is far beyond us, that he's God? Well, let's see. Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 35. On that day when evening had come, he, that's Jesus, said to them, let us go across the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took, with, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, I just want to stop there for just a moment. They call him teacher. One of the things you need to know in the Gospels, I don't have enough time right now to develop the whole thing, but is in the Gospels, the disciples don't know who Jesus is. It's right at the beginning. It's a process of discovery until Jesus 
shows himself to them after he rises from the dead, but they're discovering who he is. And at this point in their walk with Jesus, they don't know, they have no idea who is in the boat with him, with them. They know that Jesus is their teacher, he's their leader, they're pretty sure he's the Messiah, okay? But the Jews weren't expecting the Messiah to be God. They were expecting him just to be a human king, just like David, who would rescue them from the Romans. And so they knew he was teacher. They knew he was leader. Okay? They were pretty sure he was the Messiah. They had no idea that Yahweh was in the boat sleeping on a cushion in front of them. They had no sweet clue that the one who spoke the universe into being just with his words, who split the Red Sea in two, who, who spoke to their forefather Moses in the burning bush, they had no idea that that one was sleeping right there in front of them as the waves washed into the boat. And so they shake him, teacher, teacher, no idea who he is. I want you to see what happens next. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. He doesn't even have to yell it. When I imagine in my head, I kind of picture him going, oh, Oh, what's, oh, peace, be still. Whew. Everything's quiet. Three little words. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. I want you to notice their response. I want you to notice what they don't say. They don't say, wow, this guy's really filled with the Holy Spirit. I can hardly wait till we get that filled with the Holy Spirit that we can do that. Wow, this guy's got a lot of faith. I can hardly wait till I have that much faith that I can do that. No, that's not how they respond. How do they respond? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The natural elements. Jesus did not pray to the Father, to the Holy Spirit, to have to do this for him. Yes, there's many things in the Gospels. And again, we teach this. And the Holy Spirit is so huge for the Christian life. And that Jesus did things in the Gospels by the power of the Holy Spirit as well. But it doesn't say here that the elements that Jesus prayed to the Father and the Father did it. Or Jesus, you know, kind of like Jesus is some kind of pet God. Small God in between God who can't do these things for himself. He didn't have to pray to the Father. He didn't have to pray to the Holy Spirit. It just says the wind and the waves obeyed him. And they were filled with great fear. Who then is this? See, because the disciples knew their Bibles. They knew their Bibles. And uh, the Bible is very clear. And the Jews knew this. That there was only one person who can speak to the natural elements and they obey. And that was the creator. I want to show you two little passages. Uh, and I just love this kind of stuff. When you find parallels in the Old Testament to the New Testament, I want to read you two little passages. The, the disciples knew their Bibles, and this is no accident. This whole miracle, you know, Jesus being asleep in the boat and the boat heading into a storm, all of this was one big setup for Jesus to do something to prove to them that he was God. And I want to show you something in the Scriptures. Psalm chapter 107, verses 28 to 30. I, I want you to look at this, okay? And I want you to see the parallels between Psalms and Mark 4. Then they cried to the Lord, and the word there is Yahweh. Then they cried to Yahweh in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Now, if you didn't know what the, what the, uh, the, the reference was there in Psalm, doesn't that sound a whole lot like Mark chapter 4? Doesn't that sound almost identical to Mark chapter 4? See, the disciples knew their Bibles. The Jews knew their Bibles very well. 
and Mark chapter 4 and Psalm 107 are identical, almost identical. That's no accident. In one of them, it says, Yahweh calms the storms and hushes the seas when people cry out to him. And then over here in Mark 4, we find that Jesus does those things. Why? Because Jesus is God. It's the whole point Mark is making. And so the disciples, when Jesus talks to the wind and the waves, he says, peace, be still. And they go, the disciples, great fear grips them, and they say, who then is this? Because the Messiah wasn't supposed to be able to do that. We knew he was our teacher. We thought he was the Messiah. But who then is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Psalm 89, verses 8 to 9. O Lord, and again the word there is Yahweh. O Yahweh, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. So now if we go back to Mark 4, their reaction makes a lot more sense. Great fear gripped them. And, and it's not a bad kind of fear. It's not the kind of fear that they were afraid Jesus was going to abuse them or torment them. They knew he was good. It wasn't a bad kind of fear that made them run away from Jesus. It was the kind of fear that comes by standing close to that kind of power. That kind of awesome creator of the universe power, great fear gripped them. It's the kind of fear that grips you and says, respect necessary. This is not just my buddy. This is not just some dude down the street. This is not just this got my happy cheerleader sin enabler who pats me on the back as I wallow in my sinful lifestyle and I think, hey, Jesus just pats me on the back and says my grace covers it. No, no, they, these guys had actually met Jesus and that's not how they thought of him. Great fear gripped them. Respect and obedience needed. Respect and obedience needed. And oh how far, and oh how far we have fallen from this picture of Jesus. Here in the West, we have so focused on the humanity of Jesus, and it, and it, and it manifests itself in many different ways, but we have so focused on the, on the humanity of Jesus, even though in our doctrinal statements we still have the part about he's God, but when we think of him, we think of him so much as a human being, and from there we try to work to the God part rather than the other way around. And the result is that many evangelicals today, again, they just think of Jesus as this guy that just pats them on the back and says, way to go, and he's their cheerleader. He's not your cheerleader. He loves you, but he loves you as the God who made you, your Lord and Master. And the liberals have so emphasized the humanity of Jesus while ignoring the divinity and the deity of Jesus that they've made social, social justice is their whole goal rather than salvation and absolute allegiance to who Jesus is. And of course, the word of faith prosperity teachers have brought Jesus down to our level and said, hey, you can be just like him with enough faith and Holy Spirit. You can't be just like him. We should want to act like he does in his characteristics. We've got to follow him. We've got to be servants like him. We've got to love like him. We've got to sacrifice by him. But you and me will never be God. We will never, ever be God. So I want to make this simple for you. The relationship between Jesus' deity, his divinity, his godness, and his humanity. How do we think about this? He's not just the man God. He's not just man and God. He's the God man. When you think about Jesus, think about him as the God who took on human flesh. He's the God who took on human flesh. See, the cornerstone of Jesus' identity. By the way, I'm not giving you anything new here this morning. In fact, this whole series, I'm not really giving you anything new. 
What I'm hoping to do is take some of the things that were fuzzy in your mind, that you weren't super clear on, that you maybe weren't 100% super clear and confident, razor sharp on. I want to take those things and I want to crystallize them in your mind so you think properly about Jesus. The cornerstone of Jesus' identity is his godness. On top of that is the humanity. You always, when you think about Jesus, you start with the godness. He's the God who took on human flesh, not the man who became God. Or not, he's man and God, and it doesn't matter which one you think first. The cornerstone is God. Long before Jesus ever took on human flesh, he's always been God. He's always been God. 2,000 years ago, he added in the part about being human. Do you see that? He added in the part about being human because he loves us so much. And this is how the Bible teaches us to think about God. I want to show you this in Scripture now. This is how the Bible teaches us to think about God. He's always been God. The human part is an addition to his identity. And it's an important part. I'm going to have a whole message or two just on the human part. It's important that he became man. That is super vital, but it's also important how you think about it. First, he was God. The human part was added in later. And this is how the Bible talks about Jesus. Famous, famous passage, John chapter 1, starting in verse 1. And this passage has been read so often and talked about so often. Most of us, it just goes right over our heads. But let's just look at this. I want to show you it in a new light. John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now let's just stop there for just a moment, okay? What is this Word that John is talking about? You'll notice there that the word word is capitalized, okay? The word word is capitalized. It's a name. It's a person, okay? And, and we've, most of us have read this. Most people have no idea what he's talking about when he talks about the word. In order to understand who this person is, the word that John is talking about, you have to know a bit about your Old Testament. Because again, all the Jews, John writing the Gospel of John, he is steeped in the Old Testament. And the Jewish people he's writing to are all steeped in the Old Testament, so to understand what John is talking about here when he said the word was with God and the word was God, who is this word? You have to think like a Jew in John's time did. What were they thinking about? In order to do that, you have to, you have to know your Old Testament a bit. So let me just give you a quick uh, little history here, and then this passage hopefully will come alive a little bit for you a bit more. Uh, when you read through the Old Testament, there's a phrase that you will encounter dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of times, over and over and over again, and it is the phrase, the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord, okay? And, uh, and now, when you encounter that phrase, if, as you're reading through your Bibles and, and you're reading through the Old Testament, when you encounter that phrase, the word of the Lord, it can mean, whenever you run into it, it can mean one of two things. The first thing is that it can mean is, it can just mean communication from God. So, you know, God gives some, talks to someone, gives them direction, like David, or he talks to a prophet, and what they got was a word of the Lord, okay? They, they got a word from God. They got communication from God. Often when you're reading through the Old Testament, the word of the Lord just means that. But there's many times, and the Jews knew about this. In fact, we have historical writings. They were writing about this in Jesus' time. They were discussing this in Jesus' time. They didn't know what to do with it because there's a whole bunch of times in the Old Testament when this phrase, the word of the Lord, suddenly kind of pops out of the story and becomes like a person. It's not just communication anymore from God. It actually becomes like a person. And suddenly, uh, you know, it'll, the Old Testament, you'll just be reading, and it's just right there in the text. You'll just be reading along, and at one point, the word of the Lord is just a communication from God. The next moment, suddenly, this word of the Lord has popped out of the story, and it's appearing to people, and it's talking to people, and it's doing things. And the Jews knew about this. They didn't know what to do with it. 
I mean, now as Christians, you know, with the benefit of hindsight and the New Testament and, and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, we know that about the Trinity, that God is three persons in one. But the Jews were discussing this in Jesus' day. They didn't know what to do with this. Who's this person? The word of the Lord, okay? I just want to show you. I, I'm just a nerd on some of these Bible things. I'm going to just show you a couple of examples. Do you mind if I show you a couple of examples? Okay, some of you said yes, and some of you said no, so I'll just do it, okay? I just, we'll, just, we'll come back to John. I just want to show you a couple of examples where this phrase, the word of the Lord, ceases to be communication from God, and it becomes a person. One example is the famous story of, of Elijah. You know, 1 Kings 19, it's a famous story. You know, Elijah's running away from Jezebel, and he runs away to this cave, and he's hiding, and then there's an earthquake and a, and a windstorm and a fire, and, but, and then God's in a whisper, right? Famous story, right? 1 Kings 19.9, I want to show you who appears and talks to Elijah. There he, that's Elijah, came to a cave and lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, oh, wait a minute, the word of the Lord is suddenly a he. The word of the Lord is a he who comes to Elijah. And again, the Jews did not know what to do with this in Jesus' day. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Okay? So who is this he? There's this mysterious character, this word of the Lord person. You know, uh, it would be very weird. You know, nobody would ever say, you know, Chris's words came to me last night and, and talked to me. I mean, I might come to your house and talk to you, but my words don't come to your house and talk to you, and then you call my words a he. Right? So the word of the Lord is a he. And this happens all over in the Old Testament. First Samuel 3, 7, another example here. Uh, little Samuel is just a little boy. And it's right at the beginning of his temple service there for Eli after his mom, Hannah, gives him over to the Lord. And here's what it says. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Now, the interesting thing is here, if the word of the Lord is just communication from God, this sentence doesn't make any sense. Because if the word of the Lord is just communication from God, this sentence should say, now Samuel did not yet know the Lord because God hadn't spoken to him yet. But that's not what it says. In this sentence, it divides. There's two people. Samuel doesn't yet know the Lord, Yahweh, and he also hasn't ever seen this, the word of the Lord character. And so the Jews were debating this in Jesus' day, and they were talking about, you know, how is this word of the Lord character is somehow God, but he's separate from God. And so now we're going to go back to John chapter 1, and in John chapter 1, uh, John, the apostle John, is bringing two things together. He's first of all explaining to all of his Jewish friends and family who this word of the Lord character is, and he's bringing that together with who Jesus is. All right? So now we look at John chapter 1, verse 1, and it just starts to come alive a little bit. In the beginning was the word. So the word of the Lord is a person in the Godhead, right? Who's always existed. He is God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The word was a person. Okay, the Word was a person, okay, and for some reason called the Word. I don't know why God does that, but, okay. Verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And then verse 14, here's the kicker. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This character who is God but is separate from God, who appears throughout the Old Testament, who created the whole universe... He is God. 2,000 years ago, took on flesh and came and lived among us as a human being, Jesus Christ. And the Word became flesh 
and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And you say, now, why is this important? This is important because the Bible is showing us how to think about Jesus. The Bible does not start talking about Jesus. The Bible does not introduce Jesus to us as, here's a man, and oh yeah, on the side, he also does this God thing. The Bible does not tell us, here's a man, and oh yeah, don't ever forget, he's also God. That is not how the Bible talks about Jesus. The Bible comes to us and introduces Jesus to us screaming, he is God in the flesh, came and dwelt among us. But he has always been God, and the human part was added on top because of his, his love for us. Now, when you begin to know this, first of all, the word of God begins to come alive to you because we Christians have so thought about his humanity that many of the stories in here, we totally miss out on Jesus' love. We are so focused on the humanity of Jesus that we miss out how amazing the gospel story really is. So we read the Christmas story. Jesus was born in a manger. And it doesn't thrill us. And one of the reasons it doesn't thrill us is, well, all people get born. I mean, every one of you here was born, right? I mean, there's nobody ever who hasn't been born. So, okay, he was born in a manger, in a stable. That's a little unique. But we're not blown away Jesus was born. The reason we're not blown away Jesus was born is because we just think of him as a man, and all men are born. But when you realize that the Bible is screaming to us, he is Yahweh. And now you read about Mary holding this baby in her arms. Who is she holding? This helpless little baby. She's holding him in her arms. She's holding Yahweh, the one who made the universe. That should wreck us. And the shepherds come in. Can I hold him? Can I hold him? I imagine they're passing him around. And they're worshiping him. They're worshiping the one who designed them. They're worshiping the very one who sent 10 plagues on Egypt. He took on flesh and became a helpless baby. He humbled himself that low. He grew up. He went through all the stages. He was a toddler. He was a two-year-old running into the wall here and there doing other things. And who is this little baby going through all these stages? Yahweh! That's him right there. And he's letting us hold him and touch him and take care of him. That is mind-blowing. But it isn't mind-blowing to us anymore because we just think of him as a man. He is not just a man. The Bible always starts with, he is God. And at a certain point, because of his intense love for us, he took on human flesh too. But he's not just like us. You know, there's another benefit. Not only do those stories begin to come alive, but once you get this thing right, that the cornerstone of, God's, of Jesus' identity is he's God, and then the man part's on top. When it's flipped, you get all kinds of weird stuff. When it's flipped, you get people thinking of him as their buddy, as some dude down the street, as the guy who pats them on the back when they sin and just feels bad for them. You get people putting more trust in their faith and more trust in their positive thinking than they put their trust in Jesus. But when you get it right, there's another benefit. There's another huge benefit, and that is that the Word of God uh, uh, begins to come alive, and and you begin to know God better. See, if you ask most Christians today, most Christians, why did Jesus come to earth? 99.99% of us give the same answer. We always give the same answer. Why did Jesus come to earth? You're all thinking it right now. To die on the cross for my sins. Okay? Now, 
By the way, that's a good answer. I'm not making fun of you for that. Some of you are going, oh, he's going to hammer me on this one. I thought for sure I had this one right. No, that's a good answer. That is, it's true. One of the main reasons he came was to die on a cross for your sins. He loves you that much. That's amazing. Now, of course, it doesn't surprise me that the only reason we can think of has to do with us again. You notice how self-centered we are? I mean, that's a great truth. Jesus came to die on a cross for my sins. But that's the only one we can come up with. It always has to do with us. The Bible actually shows us that there's a few, and I can't go through all of them. There's a few reasons why Jesus came to earth and put on human flesh. And they're all just as important as that one. To give glory to God. Well, that's not a big one to us. I'm more into him forgiving my sins. But another, one of the biggest ones that the Bible talks about over and over again is why did Jesus come and put on human flesh and live among us? So that we can know God. Not just to forgive us, so that we could know God. I want you to think about this. How much did people know God before Jesus came? What, what did we know about God before Jesus came? Well, we knew his name. We knew Yahweh. We knew some things he had done. We knew he created the world. We, you know, we had those miracles with the Israelites, you know, in Egypt and some of those things, and Moses and Abraham. So we knew some things he had done. We also knew uh, from the Bible, we knew some of his characteristics. He's merciful. He's long-suffering. He hates sin. So we knew some of these things. So, and, and all that's really good and really, really important stuff. So we had a name, we had some titles, we had some things he'd done, we had some characteristics, but how much do you know a person when that's what you know? You just have a list of things they've done and characteristics in their name. How much do you know a person? You don't really know a person until you see them in everyday life, real life situations. Is that not true? You don't really know a person until you see them in stressful situations. Until you see them at a, in, in fun situations. Until you see them at a family gathering, right? And is that stressful or is that fun? I leave that up to you. <laughs> you, don't really, you don't really know a person until you see them at a wedding, at a funeral, at work. You don't know a person until you see them at work and, and, and in action in everyday life. So now I'll ask you the question again. How much did people really know God before Jesus? All we had was a very vague, fuzzy, dark picture, and we couldn't see a face. That's all humankind knew about God before Jesus came, is we had a vague, fuzzy, dark picture, a bit of an outline, something about him, but we couldn't see his face because we'd never seen him in action in everyday life. And so the Bible tells us over and over and over again, but we miss it because we think of Jesus as a man, not as God. But why did he come? He's God. He came down and then he did stuff like he went to weddings and he went to funerals and he went to work and he had a family and he did all these sorts of things. Why? So that we could know God. But many Christians today, we don't even think to go and look at the life of Jesus in the Gospels when we want to know God. Huge numbers of Christians today. We come to church and we pray. You know, we're in the worship. Oh God, I want to know you more. Show me your face. Reveal yourself to me. And I think sometimes God is sitting there in heaven scratching his head going, what more do you want? You want another vision? You want a supernatural experience? You want a spiritual revelation? I gave you the best revelation of who I am. I came down and lived in human flesh in everyday life, and you can read all of the stories right here. But many Christians are going, oh, I gotta get, how do I know God? How do I know God? How do I know God? And they, want, they don't even think about Jesus. They go to Jesus when they want to feel good. 
when they want a pat on the back, they're sinning. Thank Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you love me just how I am. And then they go to worship service. God, show me your face. And God says, I have showed you my face. Look what it says here in Scripture. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts. Look at this. To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You want to see the glory of God? People saying, I want to see the glory of God. Oh, I want to see the glory of God. I want to see the glory of God. Here it is. To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You want to know God? This is one of the greatest gifts. You know, they know that in other countries. In China, in Iran, in the Muslim countries. I'm reading a book right now about uh, Muslim, you know, Christians in Muslim lands. And they just, they want the word of God so badly because they know they know that God, life, life is found in meditating on God's word. And so many Christians say, looking for a spiritual experience, and we don't realize that the greatest gift we have is stories about Jesus in everyday life. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God is found in the face of Jesus Christ. But we're so focused on his humanity, we forget that we can know God just by looking at him. Colossians 1, 15-19, he, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. By the way, God is not invisible, he's just invisible to us. When you're in heaven, God won't be invisible. And you go to his throne and you worship this invisible being and he speaks to you, whoa, where is that coming from now? No. But he's invisible to us. We can't see him right now, he's invisible to us. And it says here, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You don't have to conjure up some spiritual experience. Oh, God, I want to know you. Show me your face. Blah, blah, blah. You just have to look at Jesus and the life of Jesus in the Gospels. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus is the fullness of God. Jesus is the image of God. You don't have to go any further than right here. And you just look at his life and you meditate and you ponder on it. Look what Jesus himself said to Philip, one of his disciples, John chapter 14. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. I mean, right there, that's a prayer so many are praying. Lord, show, Jesus, show us the Father and that's enough for us. We just want to see more of the Father. And look what Jesus says to him. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Hello, Philip. Is this thing on? Philip, oh, show us the Father, Jesus. I mean, it sounds like, oh, Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus is like, have I been with you so long? And you still do not know me. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Now, my point here isn't that we should never pray, God, reveal yourself to me. I mean, I pray that prayer all the time. I love that prayer. And God loves the heart behind that prayer. Because we need the Holy Spirit, even to know Jesus, we need the Holy Spirit to reveal to us and to work in our hearts. There's no question about that. But my point is, as we're praying that prayer, we need to realize that many Christians today are trying to bypass Jesus in the Gospels. They're trying to have a mystical experience to know God. They're trying to you know, hit some spiritual level. You can get to know God today. You can go home today. You can lovingly ponder 
Just start, just open it up. Luke 22, I'm going to lovingly ponder whatever I find about Jesus in here. You can get to know God today because he's the image of the invisible God. He's the image of the invisible God. And that's why I think today's message is such good news. I'm making it tangible for you. Three weeks ago I said, seek, find, know, love. If you seek him, you will find him. If you find him, you will know him. When you know him, you will love him. How do we know God? You have to wait. You don't have to wait. He's given us this treasure. You open up your Bible regularly, and of course, we have to read the whole Bible, not just the Gospels. The whole Bible, Genesis to Revelation, is all extremely important, and we, have to, we need to spend time meditating on all of it and working our way through all of it. But when you are in a season where you want to know God, where you want to grow in your relationship of who is God, and we should regularly be in that season, you go to the Gospels. Because the knowledge, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God is found in the face of Jesus Christ. And so I've given you this challenge before already. Some of you may have already started, but I just wanted to make it official now by putting it in huge letters on the screen. Absolutely massive knock-you-over letters on the screen with a little twisty thing you'll notice there. And here's my, here's my challenge, is that until Christmas, just try till Christmas. You say, I'm on, a, I'm on a Bible reading plan already. You know what, good? Just do that on top of this. You don't have, I don't want you guys to fall behind on your Bible reading plan. Not at all. You might, I mean, sure, you cancel, you know, you're watching some TV shows. You might have to cancel them and, and watch, read the Bible instead. You'll be so much worse off for it. But my challenge to you is from now till Christmas, I would challenge you 30 minutes a day or, or more. I won't limit you to that. But 30 minutes a day, let's get the, 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 the light of the, glory of the knowledge of God is found in the face of Jesus, I would challenge you every day between now and Christmas, just start in Matthew 1, and just a chapter or two a day, just start thinking about Jesus. And you put yourself in the stories, and you, you picture him talking, you think about him getting born, and you think about who he is, he's God, and you always remember he's God, and then he put on human flesh. Why did he do that? He loves us so much. And you start to think about Jesus. And I tell you, your Christian life, that is the Christian life. I said to God this morning as I was here in the worship, if I could just get a few people started on a lifelong pursuit of loving Jesus and getting to know him in the Gospels, it'll radically change your life because he's everything. He's everything. You know, in the Muslim world right now, tens of thousands of Muslims are getting visions of Jesus, and that's how they're getting saved. And a lot of Christians go, oh, that is so cool. They get these visions, and I'm reading a book right now about it. It's amazing. Story after story, Jesus comes and visits, you know, horribly abused women and people and Muslims in prison, and he saves them, and they get saved, and they love Jesus, and, and they're willing to die for him. And lots of Christians, they hear about these stories, and they go, oh, why doesn't Jesus do that here in Canada? Like, I want a vision. I want a vision like that. I want to fall in love with Jesus. All these Muslims are falling in love with Jesus because they're getting visions. How come doesn't Jesus love us that much that we don't get visions? I'll tell you why we don't get visions. We have something better. They can't read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, so he has to go to them directly. He doesn't come to us because he's given us something better. He's, we've got God's word. And you can have everything those Muslims have who are falling in love with Jesus. You have all of it. Some of us have half a dozen of these in our homes and we don't touch them. You want to know God? Study his life. That's why he came here. So I would challenge you. Spend some time 
in the Gospels, loving Jesus, it'll change your life. Bow your heads with me, close your eyes. Lord Jesus, I am praying that in this church we're going to be the real thing. That's what I'm praying. I am praying that I'm going to be the real thing. Jesus, you have given us your word. Can it be that simple? Can it be that simple? It's as simple as studying your life and falling in love with you and getting to know you. Jesus, you are moving powerfully all over the world in China, Asia, the Muslim world, and it's not like you love us less. It's that we love you less. Jesus, if we would just know you, I pray that your Holy Spirit is going to plant a seed in a whole bunch of people's life here in this room today. That's the only reason I preach this message. Otherwise, it doesn't matter. I pray that a whole bunch of people from this room are going to go home today and they're going to actually begin to study you and fall in love with you and become disciples of you where they're not following me or Pastor Ray. They're not following the leadership here at Southland so much as they're following you directly because they love you. That's a revival, Jesus. We begin to live in righteousness, filled with the Holy Spirit, absolutely in love with you, following you with our whole lives. In your name I pray. Amen.